0: With a spotlight like that, you try to do your best. (laughs) As I will, in something that is somewhere between sermon and academic paper, somewhere between what we wish and how it is. First, let me acknowledge your presence, the presence of God, to say in this way, grace and peace to you, Dean Garland and Associate Dean Tucker. Grace and peace also to you, my esteemed faculty colleagues. And you are that. And to our dear friends of Truett who are here this morning. And finally, grace and peace to you, dearly beloved students in whom we see great promise and from whom we take great hope. In a place I love, Amongst people I love, I have the opportunity to speak on a subject I love. As heavy as it feels, I thank Dr. Tucker nonetheless for placing the burden of this moment upon my shoulders. Sisters and brothers, to speak of hymnody simply as one of several congregational song options is to clip its wings and cage it in a conversation too small. Hymn that he can sing there, indeed it can sing there, but confined there it cannot soar to its magnificent potential. Now in simplest definition, hymns are songs of praise to God. Hymnals are collections of selected hymns. Remember the word selected. And heritage, heritage might be defined as the only visible segment of the arch of our life's trajectory, our heritage. Hymn has a wide and welcoming definition. Over the years, poets and practice have come to agree that a hymn is a strophic poem of uniform meter and rhyme scheme directed to or about God. But there is an innate flexibility in this definition that has served the genre well over the centuries. In recent history, this has meant that the best of gospel songs, the best of praise courses, and modern worship songs, each a reaction and a challenge to hymns, have over time become hymns. Interestingly, the genre scripture songs came on the scene at approximately the same time as praise courses. Yet they were never really a challenge to hymns in congregational worship. And it's as if the general movement of hymnody ignored scripture songs because it basically only absorbed one of its repertoire. Seek ye first, a direct quote from Matthew 6.33, and in that hymn, 7.7, quoted as well. And they're linked together by Karen Lafferty's memorable tune. You'll find it in the book in front of you, 436. Now hymns might be thought of as notes left along the pathway by Christ followers who have walked that path before us. We pick up one of these notes and it says, in this particular struggle, here is how God God helped us. Pick up another note, excuse me, pick up another note. And it says, in this difficulty, In this particular circumstance, here is how we were healed. In this time of great rejoicing, here is the song we sang. And another note might say as we pick it up and begin to read it, here is a bit of light for this particularly dark segment of the path ahead of you. Hymns are notes left along the way by Christ followers who have gone before us, and each scrap sings a prayer or adulation, or proclamation, worthy to be called a song of praise to God. Now, no one hymn sings all of anyone's theology. But these hymns, which are bits and pieces of theology and doctrine and commentary, come together in sort of a synergistic way. One of the most interesting characteristics of a long lasting hymn is the univers- universality of its message among Christian traditions. Holy, holy, holy. Is it Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian? They all stand up and say, Yes, it's ours. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Is it Congregationalist, Lutheran, Catholic, Pentecostal? They all stand up and say, Yes, it is ours. And in the chorus of claims, we hear a prelude to an answer to Jesus' prayer, make my followers one. It was just a faint, distant echo, but I choose to hang on to it. Common songs of confession and rejoicing await the day of such unity, the unity for which Christ prayed. The songs are there waiting. When we get there, there'll be something to sing, and we'll all know them. Hymns, these little sermons and little testimonies, these little prayers and bursts of praise, as one song in one heart or one closet, they're quiet. They're personal treasures. But let them be collected by the hundreds into one life or one congregation or one book and you have a powerful synergistic dogma that pulses and glows with life. Now, hymnals. There are tens of thousands of hymns to which we have access today. Find some of mine out there with no royalties attached, by the way. There are tens of thousands of hymns which we have access. Hymnals are collections of selected hymns. Selected with particular criteria and particular intent in mind. A hymnal makes a statement that will last for anywhere from 15 to 300 years. Great care is taken formulating such a statement. or should be. In the free church... A hymnal is very much a book of common prayer, all letters in lowercase. A book of common prayer. That is to say, a book of precomposed expressions of praise and testimony and prayer, precomposed and agreed upon by a committee of representatives responding, responding to a vast array of voices, clergy and, clergy and laity alike the hymnal is this book of common prayer in its inclusion of hymns from across the spectrum of Christian traditions. Expressions from non-Baptist Christians make it into this book because of their poetic craft and quality as they declare Jesus is Lord and because of their theological veracity as they sing of life and death and life again and as they gather us around water, bread and wine. Hymnals are books of common prayer that serve to give us words as we move speechless past the manger and the cross and the tomb. Had we no words, we might explode. It is as we sing of the table's food and meaning, as we sing of the pool's breadth and depth, that our hymns began to be Baptist or Methodist or Lutheran or Catholic. It is as we sing of salvation that different covers merge to house our common songs. Even in the free church, doctrine and theology eventually matter. Heritage. Life's twists and turns produce hymnities, texts and tunes. And our heritage then becomes something we can see and say. Something we can sing and hear. Our heritage becomes something we can offer to God in worship. This is who we are. This is our trajectory as we can observe it. We give those to you, God, in worship. A hymnal. The Book of Common Prayer in the Free Church also serves as a banner, a banner unfurled by the wind of controversy. What book do you have? Why that one? Here at Truett Seminary, we have a hymnal. That's a banner unfurling, unfurled by that same breeze. The presence of a hymnal signals a prevailing, though not prescribed, worship style. And we have a Baptist hymnal. It's not the Baptist hymnal. We have a Baptist hymnal. And the presence of this particular hymnal speaks of our understanding of what it means to be Baptist. And with a bit more specificity and clarity than in the case of style alone. Young students may look at this hymnal and see nothing more than a new old book in the pew rack. Others however will look in the pew rack and see a waving banner. Indeed hymn and hymnal are flexible words in definition and in function. But this flexibility serves us well in terms of our Baptist heritage. Selected hymns and the hymnals they constitute which then become entities greater than the sum of their contents, are documented doctrine and theology. In the case of Baptists, there is a breadth to our doctrine and theology, if not a flexibility. Baptist Calvinism, for example. Hello, Dr. Olson. Baptist Calvinism, for example, covers a gamut that could be described as stretching from end to end and beyond in both directions on a scale from zero to five. Indeed, there are some Baptists searching out there for number six on the right-hand side of that scale, and some are hovering somewhere around two below zero on the left-hand side, and this Baptist hymnal acknowledges in acceptable Baptist hymns the whole gamut, or should I say the whole gamut. Look at the green book with gold lettering in the pew rack in front of you. This book is a Baptist hymnal. It is not the Baptist hymnal from 127 9th Avenue North, Nashville, Tennessee, 37234. That hymnal is within reach in a pew rack. And it is in the purac of A Baptist Seminary, which is not one of the Baptist seminaries. And there's your heritage in a hymnological nutshell. A Baptist hymnal, not the. It's within reach. You can turn me off and read during this next few minutes. There's nothing more Baptist. It's within reach, and it's in a Baptist seminary. The Baptist hymnal, *Our racks was compiled by representatives of Baptists of nearly every stripe in North America. <clears throat> Excuse me, but it must be said, to be honest with you, the committee was largely made up of recently former Southern Baptists. Its copyright date and place are 2010 Macon, Georgia. The hymnal that was in these pew racks previously was indeed the Baptist hymnal in its 1991 Nashville, Tennessee version. The 1991 book was a worship book. It was also, one might say, a final reminder and link. A final reminder and of what and link to what? Southern Baptist Convention. In 2008, the Southern Baptist Lifeway Christian Resources in Nashville produced and published Baptist Hymnal. Here it is. Technically, this is the book that follows in the line of the Broadman Hymnal, 1940, Baptist Hymnal, 1956, and the Baptist Hymnal, 1975, in Baptist hymnal 1991, here's Baptist hymnal 2008. <clears throat> now, if the 1940, 1956, 75, and 91 Baptist hymnals led to the 2008 Baptist hymnal, why did another bunch of Baptists, also of the tribe of Annie Armstrong and Lottie Moon, publish a hymnal in 2010? Why two books? Why two books published within two years of each other? Why two books for those who speak in acronyms as BSSB, WMU, FMB, HMB, IMB, NAMB, BSU, and on and on and on? Why two books for the same group who knows what the real attraction was in Ridgecrest and Glorietta's prayer gardens? And who salivate, as they say, program. (laughs) Salivate, as they say, pioneer work and missions. Why two books? Well, we would be quick to say that it's because of differences in the contents of the 2008 Baptist hymnal and the 2010 Celebrating Grace. And indeed, there are some significant differences, largely in the area of contemporary music and mainstream hymnody of the past 20 years. But one can also say that the books have obvious similarities. There are two books, in part, because a hymnal is much more than a collection of songs. There are two hymnals for these folks of the book and of like order, faith and order because hymns also speak, hymns also speak of priesthood of the believer and church and its big C and little c versions and the Trinity and the Bible and how we are to approach these things and to understand these things. And once again, because of that, differing covers are needed. this time for the nuanced contents of the Baptist Book of Common Prayer. And once again, the book becomes a banner. We are this kind of Baptist. Two hymnals, signals and confirms split in a way that traditional and contemporary music never could. Contemporary and traditional music was never a threat to what it means to be Baptist. just made it harder to pull together conferences. Two books, though, whether or not you sing from them, says something deep and real and permanent took place. Well, as permanent as a hymnal, who knows, maybe the next round, 15 years from now, is one book. <clears throat> with our book covers and tweaked contents firmly in place, we choose a hymnal and we declare what we also believe. And with the hymnal, we declare what we also, how we also interpret. Now, I can almost hear the thoughts out there, and students especially, why not do away with the hymnals and thus do away with the division? Hymnals didn't cause it. The frustrated suggestion sounds good, but a hymnal is not just a sad monument to division within a dysfunctional family. Hymns, especially when compiled into hymnals, help us carry out our biblical mandate to teach and even to admonish one another. What shall we teach? And upon what shall we base our admonition? The Bible, yes, of course, but beware. Beware the temptation to roll up our Bibles and wield them like clubs. Temptation is great. We can admonish one another in addition to good preaching. We can admonish one another, that is to say, nudge each other or even scold ourselves and each other back onto the straight and narrow with a song in our hearts and on our lips. It's there to help us. I didn't say it. God said it. And we're not even going to take what God said and beat you over the head with it. We're going to take what God said, and sing it. And we are admonishing ourselves and we are admonishing each other and we are teaching ourselves and we are teaching each other and we're doing it with gratitude in our heart, indeed in worship. Our hymns based on Scripture say, Remember and they say, Remember. This can and should be accomplished in acts of authentic worship, says Paul. Now, for my students, this isn't worship and. This isn't worship and teaching or worship and admonishing. That would cause our teaching and admonition and worship to become idolatry. This is teaching and admonition that happens as byproducts of authentic worship. Worship grounded in this life and stretching toward the next, all the while focused on God. <coughs> Excuse me. Good hymns, like all good poetry, remind us, remember, remember? Writers of hymns and editors who compile hymnals comprise an accountability group that is patient, portable, and ever-present. They teach us and remind us of our identity in the context of what we believe to be correct theology and what we believe to be correct doctrine. The hymnal is a written record of what shapes us and how that shaping takes place in life. We may be able to be self-taught, but it is much more difficult to be self-admonished. Songs that tell the truth about God and life become hymns in the ever expanding definition of that word and in the everlasting function of that word. It's a big deal when a song, whatever its worship genre of origin, makes it into a hymnal. For instance, did Christian recording artist Chris Tomlin set out to write a hymn when he wrote Forever and How Great Is Our God? I dare say no. But those two modern worship songs were seen to carry the message and reckoned to do so in a timeless way, and they're included in this book, Celebrating Grace, is Numbers fifty three and three twenty-two. Poof! They became hymns. And Chris Tomlin was a hymn writer, like it or not. Sorry, Chris, but I don't think he's sorry. A few years ago, I interviewed local worship leader and recording artist David Crowder for an article I was writing for the Journal of the Hymn Society of the United States and Canada. Now, he and I are friends. I don't have to set up interviews to talk to him. But this was an interview for this journal. In that conversation, David told me that he would love for at least one of his modern worship songs to make it into a hymnal. I don't know how hard you'd have to look at B C to find a hymnal, but it'd take a while. David Crowder wants someday one of his songs to be in a hymnal. Why? Is it because he's surrendering in the worship wars? No. Is it because he's getting older? Well he is, but that's not the reason. No, it's because he has learned how this book and its contents function in the free church. He has put hymns and hymnals in the proper conversation By the way, he is not included in the Celebrating Grace hymnal, despite my efforts, even though his modern worship song, All This for a King, was submitted to the committee and will someday be seen for the hymn that it is. I'm convinced that it will someday become a hymn, and we will see Crowder deemed a hymn writer. He's already confessed he would like that. He is creating what will surely be seen as part of our heritage, because it is He is creatively writing solid theology and doctrine to be sung in a free church setting. My dear brothers and sisters, if hymns are not your musical preference, let me assure you that it is not surrender to the the contents and the location of a hymnal somewhere in the confines of your worship center. To understand this about hymns is not surrender. To have a hymnal nearby is to keep the <clears throat> excuse me to have a hymnal nearby is to keep the proven doctrine and theology of the free church, thank you of the Free church book of Common Prayer close at hand. Don't worry about banners or ill winds that blow them. It's going to happen. We need the contents of this book, this hymnal within reach, if not within memory, lest our musical explorations and worship developments stray too far and our reforming become unintended rejection of the orthodoxy that is our heritage and responsibility in like manner. The hymn enthusiasts should not count the inclusion of songs by Chris Tomlin or Tim Hughes in our Baptist hymnal as either surrender or victory in some sort of imagined worship war. Doctrine and theology are our heritage. The free church is our heritage. Maintaining a flexible, lowercase book of common prayer and praise is our heritage and our responsibility and our responsibility. We must teach it to our children and all children of God. Give them a reliable hymnal. Now, I've seen the hymnal used in pew racks, or the hymnal used only as a doorstop, to raise a too short pianist, proper height. I could wish for more for hymnals, but I'm a patient man. At least in those situations, they know where the hymnal is. And when it dawns on them, we need it or we want it, there it will be. I freely admit my congregational song preference. Even my prejudice, since hymn has such a flexible definition but I've seen much that has reinforced my stance. I've seen hymns in the proper conversation, properly understood, welcome, even encourage, new congregational song forms and genres. Hymnody is not afraid of any new challenge. But those forms and genres if they're going to end up in this book, and the best of them will, must do their best poetically and do their best musically and do their best theologically because to be included in the hymnal is to have a mantle placed upon the song's shoulders. We are to teach and to admonish each other with songs of gratitude to God and we are to sing each other back into right thinking. In World Series when Earl Hirshhiser is pitching for the Dodgers between innings, sitting in the dugout like this. He was asked later after he won that game, were you praying? He said no, I was singing hymns. Prisoners of war coming back from the Hanoi Hilton give us this testimony. To keep track of Sunday, And to keep track of their soul, they dared on those days of Sabbath, through the walls, Morse code, bits of scripture and hymns that they could remember. What's worth that risk? when praise choruses came into being and took their turn challenging hymns, one of the accusations against hymns was that they're funeral songs, to which hymn singer said, you better believe it. They are indeed funeral songs and it took them an entire lifetime of being there, teaching it and admonishing to gain that magnificent position. It's a funeral song. This hymnal is my story. The Bible is my song. We sing. And the more we know the story in these two books, the more we can praise our Savior all the day long. Angels know the hymnal song of praise. But only the redeemed know the hymnal songs of forgiveness. Learn them now. You're going to be singing them for a long, long time. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long this is our story this is our song praising our savior all the day long amen